0: Let us now read together what we confess, first of all what we confess in the Canons of Dort, chapter 1, the articles 6, 7, 9, and 11, and then after that, Lord's Day 7, question and answer 20, it's on page 560 of your book of praise. 6 deals with God's eternal decree, that God in time confers the gift of faith on some and not on others proceeds from his eternal decree, for he knows all his works from eternity, and he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, Ephesians 1, verse 11. According to this decree, he graciously softens the hearts of the elect no matter how hard they may be, and inclines them to believe. Those not elected, however, he leaves in their own wickedness and hardness by a just judgment. And here especially is disclosed to us the profound, merciful, and at the same time just distinction between men equally worthy of condemnation or that decree of election and reprobation which has been revealed in God's word. Although perverse, impure, and unstable men twist this decree to their own destruction, it provides unspeakable comfort for holy and God-fearing souls. And then Article 7, Election Defined. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby... Before the foundation of the world, out of the whole human race, which had fallen by its own fault out of its original integrity into sin and perdition, he has, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his will, out of mere grace, chosen in Christ to salvation, a definite number of specific persons, neither better nor more worthy than others, but involved together with them, In a common misery. He has also from eternity appointed Christ to be the mediator and head of all the elect and the foundation of salvation, and thus he decreed to give to Christ those who were to be saved, and effectually to call and draw them into his communion through his word and spirit. He decreed to give them true faith in him, to justify them, to sanctify them, and, after having powerfully kept them in the fellowship of his Son, finally to glorify them for the demonstration of his mercy and the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. As it is written, God chose us in Christ. Before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Ephesians 1, 4-6. And elsewhere, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, He also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8, verse 30. And now Article 9. Election not based on foreseen faith. This election is not based on foreseen faith, the obedience of faith, holiness, or any other good quality or disposition as a cause or condition in man required for being chosen. But men are chosen to faith, the obedience of faith, holiness, and so on. Election, therefore, is the fountain of every saving good from which flow faith, holiness, and other saving gifts, and finally eternal life itself, as its fruits and effects. This the apostle teaches when he says he chose us, not because we were, but are, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Ephesians 1 verse 4. And then finally, Article 11, election unchangeable. As God himself is most wise, unchangeable, all-knowing, and almighty, so his election can neither be undone and redone, nor changed, revoked, or annulled. Neither can the elect be cast away, nor their number be diminished. And then finally, let's read together from what we confess in Heidelberg Catechism, which states these very doctrines. In a very short statement. And we will read just question and answer 20. And There we find God's word summarized as follows. Page 524. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perish through Adam? No. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. After the sermon, we will sing together from Psalm 147, the stanzas 2 and 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, to many people the doctrine of election and reprobation is illogical and incomprehensible. And it is true, it is difficult for us to get our minds around this. That is why there has been so much discussion about this doctrine throughout the ages. And that is why the canons of Dort also had to be formulated. What is the difficulty? Is God's word not clear enough? And do our confessions not explain it well enough? The answer to both questions is yes. The problem is that we have a hard time accepting the truth of God's word. It goes against our human nature, and therefore against our thinking. But it is important that we confess this very comforting and great doctrine. And so I will preach to you about the great and wonderful comfort of our eternal election. We will look at three things. First of all, man's twisted reasoning, secondly, God's sovereign power, and then finally, man's great impotence. The Catechism says that we must accept all of God's benefits. If we don't, then we will not be saved. Oh sure, man has to be drafted in first, but he must also accept God's benefits. Does that now mean, then, that there is a condition to being drafted in, being elected? This was such an important question that it had to be dealt with in a very special ecumenical synod in the early 17th century, not long after the Great Reformation. This confession is known as the Canons of Dort. This confession is not all that well known to us, but we should not, for that reason, underestimate its great value. The canons teach us something very important. A man, in some way, has always wanted to be able to to contribute at least something to their own salvation. And that is the way it has been ever since to fall into sin. As a matter of fact, that is why man did fall into sin. He wanted to have a role in his own well-being, in his own salvation ultimately. For he wanted to be like God. He did not want to give the reins over to God. He wanted to have some credit for his own contributions. And he wanted to be able to use those contributions as a bargain with God. That's, for example, what many Israelites did in bringing their sacrifices in the temple. They thought that the sacrifices as such were something through which they could be saved. That they could be saved through those rituals. At least that is something that they did. And in the New Testament, we see the same thing with the Judaizers, who thought that circumcision and other ceremonial rites and feasts were something that they could do to help with their salvation. Those ideas are clearly refuted throughout Scripture. Nevertheless, the early church continued to be prone to that kind of thinking, because that is what man is like. During the 4th century after Christ, there was a British monk, Pelagius, who taught that man could save himself through his own free will. Thankfully, the churches saw through this and condemned him as a heretic. Augustine was instrumental in this. He wrote against the heresies of Pelagius and showed from the scriptures that man was born and conceived in sin and that he is inclined to all evil. He said that all men needs to be saved, is the grace of God. But that did not end the matter for the people in the church. There continued to be a swing between Pelagianism and Augustinianism, as it became to be called. In the end, a compromise formula was agreed upon, which took ideas both from Pelagius and Augustine. And then, from then on in, This formula dominated the whole life of the Roman Catholic Church throughout the Middle Ages and also today. And that compromise theory goes as follows. Man is not really totally corrupt, but he is only sick. And so he does need God's grace, but he can receive God's grace through the sacraments, again through the rituals. It is by partaking of God's sacraments and by doing good works that you can in this way contribute to your salvation. It's not as radical as Pelagius, but it gives little improvement. For in this way we continue to see the exaltation of the sinner. Man can add to his salvation these false teachings became the official doctrine of the church. And it is that false doctrine that the reformers fought against. They wanted to confess on the basis of scripture alone that our salvation depends entirely on the grace of God. Man cannot do anything to earn his own salvation. This call by the reformers was heeded by many. Since the scriptures were now translated into the common languages of the people, they could now read what God himself said in his word and how he explains the doctrine of election. Many men went also to Geneva where Calvin and his followers taught future ministers of the word how to interpret scripture in obedience to God's word. But there were also others those who left the Roman Catholic Church, but who did not entirely throw off the yoke of Rome. Although they too renounced Roman Catholicism, they did not necessarily do so for doctrinal reasons. Many did so only for personal reasons. They wanted their freedom back. They deplored the tight grip that the Roman Catholic Church had on their personal lives, For the powerful church controlled everything, even the governing authorities all over the empire. As a result, even though they broke with the Church of Rome and became members of the Reformed Church, they did not break with the basic tenets of the Roman Church. They were still semi-Pelagianist in their thinking, continuing to want to put man in the center. And you see, such a man was Arminius. It's no wonder that in the online edition of the Catholic Encyclopedia, Arminius is hailed as somewhat of a hero. They point out in there that he had been under the influence of the Jesuits during a prolonged trip to Italy, and that for that very reason he had been called back to the Netherlands because the reformers were suspicious of him. And it's no wonder they were suspicious of him. For that became clear later when he started working as a minister. For then, indeed, he went back to the basic tenets of Rome. But he was very clever about it. Arminius knew where and how to wield influence. And so somehow he was even made a professor at the Reformed Theological University of Leiden in the Netherlands. And his teachings held quite a sway, especially with the governing authorities of that day. People began taking over his ideas. He also influenced other ministers. And so once again the Reformed Church, or the Church, had to fight against semi-Pelagianism which in the Reformed churches came to be known as Arminianism. Because of Arminians and other like-minded people, the Synod of Dort of 1618-1619 dealt with this issue, and that is why the canons were written. The Arminians came up with some complicated constructions. The reformers always maintain that you cannot be saved except by grace alone. That is clearly a biblical doctrine. Even the Arminians could not deny that. They could not deny, for example, what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 8, that it is by grace that you have been saved. But they said, what is grace? Well, God's grace, of course, is God's unmerited grace. Favor, In other words, it is God's gift to you without any effort of your own. But now the Arminians had to come to a theological system that somehow still affirms the doctrine of grace and yet still gives a role to man. And it is then that things get interesting. They come with all kinds of human reasoning. They begin twisting God's word and they come up with a doctrine of grace that precedes the exercising of saving faith. And they call that grace prevenient grace. It is a certain kind of grace that God gives to individuals which releases them from the bondage of sin so they say. In other words, it is a kind of grace that prepares them for the real thing. However, it is a grace, so they say, that you can resist. It is up to the individual to decide whether or not he wants to be converted to God. In support of their position, they do some strange manipulations of various texts. For example, concerning the text that you saw on the screen before the worship service, John 6, verse 44. And they state that the Lord Jesus speaks in that text about two different kind of people. The text says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Armenian state, that the first group of people are those whom God draws to him. And they are the ones who receive God's prevenient grace. But you either have to accept that grace or you don't. If you don't accept God's prevenient grace, then you will not belong to the second group, namely those who are raised up at the last day. It's up to you, they say. You choose. They also deal with other texts in that that way, and do this kind of exegetical gymnastics with them as well. For example, Romans 8, verse 30, where it says that those whom he has called, he also predestined. They say that that call is an inward call. There's also an outward call. And that is the one that those receive who are not predestined, and so they twist and turn to be able to give man a role in his salvation. Our confessions refute such false doctrine. Article 6 of Chapter 1 of the Canons of Dort states that God graciously softens the hearts of the elect. And God inclines them to believe. God does it. The canons give the honor and glory to God. And it uses Ephesians 1 verse 11 and many other scripture passages in support. For God is the only one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Boys and girls, I know this is somewhat difficult, but what do you think? For I also want you to think about what this is all about. Suppose your little two- or three-year-old brother or sister wants to give a gift to someone. Your little brother doesn't really own anything, does he? Whatever he has, he has received from your mom and dad. And now suppose your little brother gives a gift to your dad. Where do you think that gift came from? It came from your mother, of course. She gave it to your little brother to give to your dad. And, of course, your dad would be very thankful for such a gift. But ultimately, it doesn't come from your little brother, does it? No, it really comes from your parents. And so, if you really want to come down to it, that it is really your parents who made it all possible, even though you are doing all kinds of things yourself, and so does your little brother. Well, you see, that is also the way it is with God. God gives you something. He gives you faith, for example, and he also gives you parents who belong to the government, and all these things are his doing. All you can do, all we can do, is show our thankfulness. We ultimately have no role in it, even though we have responsibilities, even though we have to do things. We can only give glory to God. We always have to give the glory to God. God is not waiting on man to do something, for man to accept him. If that were the case, then potentially he would have an empty heaven. Actually, then he would have an empty heaven, for man is incapable of coming to him. Just like little children are totally dependent on their parents, so are we totally dependent on God for everything. With the Arminian doctrine, God is no longer sovereign. He has been stripped of his power and of his glory. God is the almighty creator, and he is also the almighty Recreator. He did not need anyone to bring about his creation, did he? He spoke, and it came to be. And He didn't need anyone either in our recreation, does He? God controls everything. He is in control of every moment in your life. He knows your days and the hours and the seconds that you will spend here on this earth. Now then, what do you think? Do you think that if God, who controls everything, including all the little things in life, as well as the big things that then he would not also be totally in control of your salvation? Of course he is. But you may say, isn't there something we have to do after all? We have to have faith, don't we? Does everything really depend on God? And you see, that's also what the Armenians argued. They also reasoned this out further by stating that God's election is based on his knowledge of man's foreseen faith. The Lord God, in other words, knew beforehand who was going to be a believer, and on that basis, he elects him. God elects man, say the Arminians, again, on something that man does. But what did the fathers of Dort state in defense? Well, from Article 9 of Chapter 1, it is clear that election does not depend on our faith. But it is the other way around. Faith is the fruit, faith is the result of our election by God. It cannot be otherwise. And that is straight from Scripture itself. A most obvious text is Ephesians 2 verse 8 where it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Faith is a gift from God, and he will give it to whomever he wills. Man cannot boast of anything that he has done with respect to his own salvation or will do. God's favor towards us does not depend on anything man does. And that is why Paul also sings his praises to God in Ephesians 1. Paul praises God for the good work which he has begun in the believer... Paul sees the fruit of the election of God to those to whom he had only a few years before preached the gospel to those Ephesians people. Why do you think a little child would want to give a gift to his parents? Why would you do that, children? Because you love them. Because you belong to them. That's the only reason that gives you joy, doesn't it? And see how cheerfully Paul speaks about the work of God. Paul knows that he belongs. He belongs to the family of God through no merit of his own. Everything he has has been given to him, including his faith. And now he also has to exercise that faith. Oh sure, humanly speaking, Paul had to make a lot of sacrifices. He had to withstand many hardships in order to bring the gospel. And also the people to whom he brought the message of Christ, they had to give up a lot of things. They no longer could participate in some of the commercial activities of the world as they could before. Now they had to make an honest living. And now they also had to endure the scorn and the persecution of their fellow citizens. It appears that he had to do a lot in order to be acceptable to God. But Paul does not mention any of these things. No, he gives the glory to God alone. It is only because God elected them that they could do these things and make these sacrifices. Election always comes first. The Ephesians did these things out of thankfulness. Paul preached to them about the once for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He showed how God loved the world. How he would give his own son for the sin of mankind. As we saw this morning, what a wonderful gift that is. And having heard that, those Ephesians also wanted to be part of Christ. But the catechism also adds another part in question and answer 20. It says that he must accept all these benefits. Well, that's what those Ephesians did. Above all, Paul looks at that congregation and he does not see his own works or the works of his fellow believers. What Paul sees is the work of God. He sees that God the Father worked all these spiritual blessings. It was he who before the foundation of the world had decided everything by his unchangeable decree according to the good pleasure of his will. He desired this that this sinner and that sinner, and also those sinners there in Ephesus, that one day they would become members of the church called by God's Spirit and cleansed by God by Christ's blood. That is where Paul's eyes finally come to rest. At the eternal election of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the eternal foundation of all our spiritual blessings. So what then are the reasons for our salvation? There are none. None in the whole world. They are only with God in his good pleasure. Can you imagine if it were otherwise? Then you would come with the arrogant position that we are included as God's children because God saw something more redeeming in you or me than in someone else. And that he chose you or me because somehow we were better. We were the ones who chose. The other ones didn't. And then we would be boasting, wouldn't we? No, God elects. It's his doing. And he gives us that assurance for our comfort. It is true that it is hard for us to delve into the mind of God. Many questions still come to mind. And that is why the canons of Dorrit state in Article 12 of Chapter 1 that we must not inquisitively pry into the hidden and deep things of God, but we must observe the spiritual joy and holy delight the unfailing fruits of election pointed out in the word of God, such as the true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, and a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Let me put it in plain language. How do you know that you are God's elect? By realizing the great gift of his Son and realizing everything that he has done for you and for me. And then, by leading a thankful life, by showing that you belong to him. For God chose you to eternal life. He chose you from eternity. And nothing and no one can undo that wonderful work of God. Amen.